0: Hello, and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today I'm speaking with Thomas Lin about the books Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, The Biggest Ideas in Science from Quanta, and Prime Number Conspiracy, The Biggest Ideas in Math from Quanta. Thomas Lin is the founding editor-in-chief of Quanta Magazine, an online publication that reports on developments in science and mathematics with content syndicated in publications such as Wired, The Atlantic, Scientific American and the Washington Post. Lynn previously worked for the New York Times where he edited online features and wrote about science, technology, and tennis. He's also written for Quanta, The New Yorker, Tennis, and other publications. Stay tuned to After the Interview for more information about the show. Thomas Lynn, thanks so much for taking time to talk to the MIT Press podcast today.
1: My pleasure, Chris.
0: Now these two books, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire and Prime Number Conspiracy, are collections of articles from the magazine Quanta. For those people unfamiliar with Quanta, could you describe what its mission is?
1: Sure, Uh, you know, I think the simplest way of putting it is is that, uh, you know, Quanta is a magazine really for anyone who wants to understand how the universe works. And, you know, I think what makes us different maybe from some of the other science magazines out there is that we focus on the big fundamental questions in science and mathematics, uh, we don't uh, follow or care so much about uh, more applied areas of, of science, uh, like technology and engineering and medicine and, and health, and those areas, which are all very important, of course, uh, and, and what uh, you know, much of the popular press does a great job of, of, of covering. Uh, but we focus on the, you know, what we might consider the most basic, fundamental questions. You know, how did the universe um, come to be? What, what are all the different sort of Uh, things that 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 make up the universe what are the fundamental forces and how do they work together Um, how did life begin and and uh, you know what uh, are are, uh, what is what is life even in some of these you know uh, big deep questions the research behind it or especially at the forefront of of trying to answer some of these questions or at least gain new knowledge uh, tends to be very very technical and and, uh, it's uh, hard even for other researchers in adjacent fields uh, to, to fully grasp. And so uh, what we do as, as journalists is we try to make that information uh, as accessible as possible to the general public while also uh, being true to the uh, research in terms of trying to accurately cover uh, the science and to actually Tell people what the science, what's interesting about the science itself. I think one of the challenges, uh, again, in, in, in science journalism, uh, at least in the media in general, is that you have lots of stories that uh, make it appear that something happened, uh, but don't really tell you what it is that happened and how uh, that uh, advance or, or result uh, came about. And So we try to do that in, in both an accessible and engaging way, but we try not to skimp uh, on, on the science itself. I was going to say, that
0: that particular tension in science journalism between dealing with scientists who have something to say but might not necessarily be, you know, grand sweeping statements. There are a lot of equivocation with some of these issues in science versus the journalistic need of, like, I have to tell a story that is, I don't want to say necessarily punchy, but I have to keep the reader's attention just because of the nature of journalism. You know, I guess... Working with that tension, to me, would seem to be both as an editor and as a former scientific journalist. I actually I shouldn't say former because I know one of your one of your articles is in her, co That article that must be it must be interesting to sort sort out how you, I guess, address that tension between the two sides.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. I think that's a concern. I, I would say um, that many scientists have in in what they're seeing out there, and and also I think a lot of journalists do uh, in in terms of that tension between. How do you uh, make uh, the results of, uh, again, very technical research, uh, both accessible and engaging without misleading people, right? And I think that's unfortunately a challenge that we see uh, in in some of the coverage um, that can seem either superficial or or, um, can occasionally cross into the territory of either hype or even being misleading when there's an attempt by some... Uh, editors or, or writers to make it appear that something has uh, been settled for good. And and I think part of what we try to do is not only accurately represent uh, the result itself, but to convey um, how science itself is done and to not, you know, I think in, in our, if you read our stories, uh, you don't generally get the sense that whatever result we're writing about is, you uh, some kind of settled knowledge and there's it's you know science itself is is provisional uh we're constantly revising or not we but the researchers who are working on these problems are constantly revising um the the current best theories and trying to use experiments and and other data uh to figure out the best way forward and so we we try to capture that and, and not present um our stories as this is all we know because really you know that's part of what's interesting and fun about science is that there's so much that we don't know and there's so much to explore.
0: So now let's talk about the books in particular. Um, Alice and Bob meet the Wall of Fire collection of quantum articles about the world of physics. Uh, but the topics range from recent developments in quantum theory to questions about the nature of life and of the mind. Actually as I was looking through it, it seemed that the organizations need to be almost from like, uh, I want to say kind of a funnel, from like the biggest questions down to kind of the some of the more smaller questions. Not that, not that the question, what is life, is necessarily a small question. <laughs> but when you think about it as opposed to what's the nature of reality or the nature of time, it, 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 it kind of looks small in comparison to those. Uh, but an overall Shape of the of the articles. I kind of got a sense. Question of: What do you know if it's fair to say that physicists are having trouble going from big to small, connecting the macro view of the universe when we think about Einsteinian relativity theory, and then the micro view of the universe of quantum theory? It seems that on the poles, physicists have a pretty good idea, a rough idea of what's going on. But when they try to connect the two, that's where they're starting to run into some problems. Is that accurate?
1: That that's an interesting way of thinking about it. And and. Uh you know, I think that's that is true. I mean, I think there, you know, as as uh, follow, people who are following uh, what's happening in theoretical physics, um, you know, uh, may be aware of there there is a, a, an incompatibility between uh, Einstein's general relativity and uh, quantum theory, and that's one of the problems in trying to come up with a theory of everything is that um, right, those two um, theories don't play well together, and therefore it's hard to find a theory that. Um, can explain all of the the four fundamental forces uh, string theory does that but there's no empirical evidence for it and so one of the issues is even at those poles of, of the very smallest and the very largest um, it, it isn't uh, possible to uh, gather empirical evidence to support some of these ideas like string theory for example or to know to go back far enough in time to know exactly what happened at the beginning of the universe um, or you know to to confirm whether Cosmic inflation happened, for example, or something like that. And so uh, one issue is that at the polls, there is, uh, we've already reached, our theories have reached a, a state. Um, we've crossed the, the boundary uh, at, at which we can no longer fully test uh, some of these ideas, which is, is one challenge. But as you said, there's also the other challenge of connecting things at different scales. And I think one of the interesting themes that's emerged, I think, in recent years in science is that is this idea of emergence, right? Whether it's in physics or biology or, or other areas of science, uh, this idea that there are emergent properties uh, that, uh, and that you know, wh- whether it's through phase transitions or however you go from one state to another, it isn't always possible to understand uh, that transition or to say, study all the, the you know, microscopic um, subatomical components of a system to try to understand uh, sort of the larger phenomena that that can happen when when uh, they all interact, and so uh, there are a lot of unknowns out there, and uh, that's really what the book is about. And it's it's not only an exploration of from big to small, but in some ways it's it's somewhat chronological as well. It's sort of talking about these big questions about the origins of the universe, and then sort of um, moving along to questions of of life um, emerging, and and then you know, people, like what, what makes us human and uh, and how our brains sort of work, and, and then on to now questions of, as we're exploring the universe and trying to make sense of it, how are we going to do that when we've kind of reached the limit of what we can physically test?
0: As uh, people may or may not know, I've done podcasts for a long time, and I was, I was actually talking to a former guest uh, about Going back almost ten years, but uh, two thousand nine was the one hundred fiftieth anniversary of the Origin of Species, and obviously back then I got a lot of books about Darwin and a lot of books about evolution. And one yeah. of the things I really liked in the questions about life in Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire is, and it got me thinking about the fact there's an article in there talking about how, although evolution is important, actually evolution might be a subset of a bigger issue that goes on in life. And in fact, <laughs> I mean, I found that out. I found that fascinating. Could you talk briefly about that?
1: Uh, there is an idea out there. I think it's uh, it's 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 pretty um, you know eye opening and, and it's, it's thought provoking. Let's say um, not all biologists you know fully sort of buy into it yet, and it's it's sort of again that's it's what you were talking about in terms of uh, trying to make physics work with biology, for example. And so um, there is this idea out there uh, that it, uh, that's. That was developed uh, by by many in the past, and but more recently by Jeremy England at uh, MIT at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, that the the idea behind this is that life uh, could, even though it seems like life is this very ordered, structured thing, and how can you get that if if everything is um, going from a low, low entropy state to a high entropy state, um, there's this idea that actually you could, uh, life itself could be one way to dissipate heat and essentially create a, a situation where you have higher entropy. And so it could very well be very inevitable and a, and a, and a uh, natural consequence of the laws of uh, thermodynamics. And uh, that's you know, a very interesting theoretical idea for, for how life could have got, could have, um, got started. Uh, But, you know, we still need to figure out the exact mechanisms and, you know, what were the the molecules and and how did they actually come together. And and so that's where, you know, sort of the chemistry and biology haven't quite connected with some of these ideas. But uh, this is a potentially more universal way of thinking about uh, life and evolution.
0: Let's talk about the other book, Prime Number Conspiracy, a collection of quantum articles about the world of mathematics. And as the title suggests, more than a few of the essays look at the current state of prime numbers. Uh, I remember back in high school, I actually had a fantastic, I had fantastic uh, math teachers all through high school and a trigonometry teacher who was beloved by all of his students there was nuts about prime numbers. Um, and it never really connected with me just simply because I don't know if at that point, my that part of my brain had opened yet. But what is it about, <laughs> prime, number? what is it about prime numbers that makes them such an important area of mathematical research?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, if you think about number theory uh, specifically, um, you know, you want to understand how how numbers work and the structures of numbers. And, and, uh, and prime numbers are essentially the building blocks of, of numbers, right? They're kind of like the atoms in the um, periodic table. And if you think of prime numbers almost like uh metaphorically the the elements in the periodic table then all the other sort of molecules that you could potentially create are combinations of those right so you multiply um, prime numbers to get all the other composite numbers that that exist out there and and so they're interesting for that reason and then also you want to know you know what what is the distribution of prime numbers right and and what are the gaps between prime numbers are prime numbers you know in, in some sense uh Random in, in the way that they appear uh, in, in the number line, or is there are there other sort of um, forces at play? Um, and these are all just fascinating questions because uh, you know numbers are in some ways the, the simplest, uh, most fundamental aspects of, of mathematics. And and what's interesting is that you know while the the firm connections have not yet been found, um, there are. Uh, there's there are signs that there may even be connections between some of these uh, questions of the distribution of prime numbers with areas of physics, for example, and that's just incredibly deep and fascinating. There's actually um, one of the the story, the book, uh, the Prime Number Conspiracy starts with uh, just a really interesting story of a an unlikely um, discovery or a discovery made in some ways by an unlikely source. Uh, there was a 50-something-year-old mathematician who did not even have a job as a professor. He was a lecturer at a university and had spent many years after uh, getting his um, his doctorate uh, basically working at places like, you know, Subway sandwich shops and, and and not having a job in academia. And on his own, he was working on this very fundamental number theory uh Problem about prime numbers uh, called the twin primes conjecture, and the twin primes conjecture basically asks, you know, are there? Or actually, it, it uh, conjectures that there are an infinite number of prime number pairs that are only two apart. So, like five and seven, and eleven and thirteen, and seventeen and nineteen. Those are um, twin primes because they're only two apart. But as you think about the number line, as as you go f- farther out on the number line. Uh, we see that prime numbers um, become sparser, right? There are fewer and fewer prime numbers. And so it's not at all obvious that you should continue to see these twin primes as you go out along the number line at all, uh, or that there's any bounded gap at all between prime numbers. It could be that they just, uh, the gap grows bigger and bigger, and there's, you know, that you never find an infinite number of any, uh, pair of not just of two apart but of any finite number and so while this mathematician Tang Zhang uh, did not prove the twi- twin primes conjecture itself he did make a major major advance in proving that there are in fact an infinite number of pairs with a bounded gap of a finite gap and he, he just used the number you know 70 million as the gap uh, just just because it was easier for him to prove and since then other mathematicians have taken that and uh, reduce that gap down, uh, but but that was an enormously big advance in number theory from somebody who was completely unknown in the field, and that create, created created a you know a sensation in, in in the math community. He was traveled around the world giving talks. He was offered jobs, of course, after that, and uh, and also it's led to lots of interesting results, and, and it uh, pushed forward you know our understanding that there are in fact infinite numbers of pairs of prime numbers with, with a finite gap.
0: Now, I realize this next question might be a little bit like asking a father, which of your children do you love best? But uh, are there are there a particular article in either book that you think is going to have the most far-reaching consequences for either the future of physics or the future of mathematics?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tough question. Um, I, you know, I, I think, I, I don't want to talk about a, a specific um, research result because, you know, many of these ideas are, Highly, uh, you know, theoretical, and and they're they're interesting ideas. Uh, they are ones that that researchers are are, are thinking deeply about and, and and could push things forward. But they're somewhat speculative too, and so it's hard to say whether you know which idea will necessarily pan out. But uh, some of our stories uh, have also um, reported on developments within the field of, fields of, of of physics and and mathematics and biology. Uh, itself and and one of them i think is is at least it gets at the one of the um key debates right now that's happening in physics which is you know we just talked earlier about um how right now physics is uh the the theories themselves are are uh probing uh scales of physics that we can't really test uh and we we can't um we're unable to to get any kind of empirical evidence to support some of these theories at the, either the small scales or the largest scales. And and so it raises the question of the nature of evidence, of scientific evidence, especially when we can't um, we, we can't access uh, you know empirical evidence to to support one theory over another. And so um, that raises the question of can we then turn to purely mathematical um, evidence, for example, is that something that we can at least give us more confidence in, in pursuing certain ideas? And there was a big uh, debate in Munich a few years ago uh, where physicists and philosophers of physics got together to, to sort of hash out these ideas. So uh, this is, you know, one of the things that I think is, is, um, is going to be important for physicists to figure out, um, you know, as we move forward and And try to develop ideas uh, in the absence of of uh, empirical data. Uh, the other uh, thing I think that's uh, you know I think for me, thinking to the future is there are some of the stories that we've um, that we we have in in, in both of these books talk about these growing and very surprising connections between pure mathematics, and areas of science, um, mostly mostly physics and, and areas like like string theory, um, that you wouldn't necessarily expect. And it's, you know, again, these connections are still not fully developed and, and you know, uh, physicists and mathematicians are, mathematicians are still trying to understand what they mean, but they're seeing some of the same numbers and structures um, across, again, from, from number theory to particle physics and, yeah, this gets at this this deep question that uh, Eugene Wigner, the Nobel Prize-winning uh, physicist, wrote about back in in 1960. This question of uh, the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. Like, why is it that math, that was developed for its own sake, not necessarily to, to try to model or understand something that you're seeing physically, um, how is this pure mathematics then somehow able to work and help us explain um, real-world phenomena? And that's um, that's that's a really deep question. I think that that could um, bear a lot of fruit um, in the future.
0: So are there some social media links for both the work that you do and as Quantum Magazine so people can fo- continue to follow what's going on?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, the Quantum Magazine is on uh, Twitter at... Uh, uh, Quanta magazine and uh, on Facebook as Quanta News. Uh, we're also on Instagram, YouTube, and, and places like that. And uh, please uh, do follow us. And and you know, f- uh, this is really an adventure for us uh, to to be covering these areas of of, of of fundamental science. And and we hope you'll uh, you'll join us for the ride.
0: I hope we do too. I really like both books very much. Thomas Lin, the editor of Quantum Magazine and I guess the collector of essays in the, excuse me, the collection of articles for both Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire and Prime Number Conspiracy. Thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today.
1: Thanks so much, Chris.
0: For more information about these and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press podcast. Copyright 2019, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.